For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all people. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I love this feast of Candlemas for many reasons. For one, I love Christmas and I love Epiphany. And ever since I heard several years ago that Epiphany doesn't really end until February 2nd, I decided I had the ultimate excuse to keep my Christmas decorations up all through the month of January. I don't understand people putting up their decorations in November before Thanksgiving, but why don't they just extend the season this way properly through Epiphany? So even though James Gordon may have told us four weeks ago in his Epiphany sermon that it was time to take down our Christmas trees, I have to admit I didn't do it. Um, I have to say actually kind of proudly I'm taking down my smallest one today as well as all my vigil lights and my crash and all the other various Christmas decorations. And I think that Rich eventually will get around to taking out the lights outside, um, hopefully before Easter. But um, they shone last night for the last night, and I left them on all night because today is the eve. Last night was the eve, and today is candle mass. So these new February 2nd rituals that I have adapted have given me a, also a really deeper appreciation and a time to reflect upon this beautiful story of Christ's presentation in the temple, which I think is one of the most beautiful stories we have in our New Testament. It begins with the faithful journey of Mary and Joseph back to Jerusalem to fulfill the ritual requirements of the law regarding purification and dedication. And there they meet this man, Simeon, a man described in our test as righteous and devout, a man upon whom the spirit rested, who had been hoping and desiring to see the Lord's Messiah. Further, the Holy Spirit had revealed to him this desire would be fulfilled before his death, and then guided him to the very place where he would encounter the Messiah. And this is so unlikely, because there was no star in the east, there was no uh, presentation of angels to Simeon that led him to the stable. He was going to the temple to worship, and there he encountered the Messiah. And so the still small voice of the Spirit's guidance was sufficient for Simeon. And so indeed he saw in the face of this little baby being presented the promised light of Israel. It's striking also because throughout the Gospels the confusion over the ministry and identity of Jesus as the Messiah is a prevalent theme. How could the Messiah be the son of a carpenter from Nazareth? The great Jewish scribes and teachers of the law misunderstood their own scriptures. Even Jesus' disciples fiercely rejected the idea that their Messiah would die in a cross. And yet Simeon, guided by the Holy Spirit, recognized this hope of Israel in the face of a baby, a baby born of parents who could only afford the pauper sacrifice of the turtle doves. What many others in the future failed to see, the Holy Spirit revealed to Simeon that this Messiah would be a light not only to Israel, but to all the nations of the Gentiles, but that he would die in a way that would pierce his mother's soul. And yet, he also knew that this baby would conquer the world, defy death, and end the grip of Satan's bondage of sin. But the story does not end there. 
because next we have this wonderful story of Anna, identified, interestingly enough, as a prophet who for 77 years had spent her life in the temple, worshiping, fasting, and praying night and day, and evidently speaking also. Like Simeon, she too had hoped for the redemption of Israel. And upon seeing Jesus, she immediately goes out and wants to tell everyone, especially those who also share this hope, that Jesus is in fact the one. Luke the evangelist has given us a woman as the first evangelist in his gospel. And as a slight aside here, this story is remarkable to me because there are hardly any literary records of the lives of women in the ancient East, with the major exception being the stories about women like this one in the New Testament. I believe it is intentional. I believe it was counterculture because it provides a witness to the attitudes of the gospel writers in their context that women's stories do matter and that their ministries are life-changing wherever their call may be. These stories of Anna and Simeon are beautiful and yet challenging for many reasons. But I want to zero in on this. What hope does this story inspire in you? What are your true hopes? And by what sign will you look for their fulfillment? And what happens when the hopes that you hold don't turn out quite the way you thought they were going to? Simeon and Anna represent the kind of people whose rest and reliance on the Holy Spirit shape their hopes and desires in line with the kingdom purposes of God. Therefore, I believe there is much that we can learn from them in the ways in which God's Spirit can shape and guide us in our own desires and help us to recognize their fulfillment. So first, what strikes me about this story is, for lack of a better word, is the cosmic nature of the hopes of Anna and Simeon. Their hopes were not involved around personal recognition or even personal salvation. They were looking for the salvation of the world. And this is consistent with the biblical message. The scope of salvation in Christ incorporates the whole of God's creation. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians. With all the wisdom and insight he has made known to us, the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ, is a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. This plan, then, is our ultimate hope. It's our shared hope. Recently, I read a book by Gordon Smith on the nature of conversion or salvation in Christ. In it, he spoke about how the so-called revivalist vision of conversion has distorted our understanding of the nature of salvation. He writes, the revivalist vision of salvation tends to begin with the individual. The focus is on the person who might accept Christ and then be saved, and then hopefully they will join the church, and the world is almost an afterthought if it is remembered at all. He goes on to explain that when we put too much emphasis on personal fulfillment in God, we lose the grand vision of the New Testament wherein the cross of Christ intersects each sphere and dimension of human life and work. Our thinking can become escapist and solely individualistic 
For the mission of God is not merely the salvation of individuals here and there, he writes, but the formation of a people who are equipped to be kingdom agents in the world. Anna and Simeon longed to be kingdom agents. They longed to see the kingdom come forth, and they possessed the full picture of the Messiah and his kingdom, the salvation of Israel and the world. So one of the effects of living in a culture, both secular and Christian, that elevates individual rights and personal fulfillment and salvation is that we can lose hope, actually, of our ultimate hope in Christ. When we let our desires be shared by our culture's desires, our hopes and dreams become entangled. You know, many of us know our superficial wants to see success as the fruit of our effort and work, to see that success recognized. None of these things are wrong in and of themselves. But when we dwell too much in our wants, we often lose touch with our deepest longings and hopes. We become unhappy and restless as we realize we really don't want what we get. Augustine said it best, you have made us and drawn us to yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Anna and Simeon were in touch with the deepest desires of the human heart, knowing God and being in touch with the Spirit. One of the things that stood out to me in the text was the progression of the description of Simeon's relationship to the Spirit. First, the Spirit rested on him. Second, the Spirit revealed to him his hope. And third, he was guided by the Spirit. He saw his hope fulfilled in a most unlikely way. So some days it's just hard to know what we are supposed to be hoping for, for what it is we truly desire to see happen in our lives. Don't get me wrong, it's not wrong to have our own personal hopes and desires, not to want to make a difference, to be better people, to be kingdom agents. And God has given us these hopes and aspirations tailored to who we are, to the very ways he has knit us in our mother's womb. Many of the deepest longings of our hearts have been put there by God. David Benner writes this about desire. Christian spirituality is not about the crucifixion of desire, but rather it is about the distillation and focusing of desire. Sometimes the only way to know our deepest desires is to actually start with our surface desires and unravel them downwards to find the stronger underlying desires. But we cannot purify our own desires. We need to make that deep connection with God in prayer to realize he is what, he, he is what we truly desire and his kingdom is what we truly desire to see come forth in our lives. We need to be silent before God and let him sort us out. It is in prayer that God the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus to us. And here I'd like to interject a personal story about my own desires. And I've always, you know, I remember in Sunday school singing, Jesus Loves Me. God put that desire for him deep in my heart so that years later, when I was, had a little program that I went to with my children and my daughter was singing, or no, actually it wasn't my daughter, I was just watching, my, kid, my, my daughter was a baby, she was in the nursery and the kids were singing Jesus Loves Me. And I just burst into tears. 
And somebody poked me and said, well, which one is your child? And I said, she's in the nursery, but Jesus loves me. I've known that for so long. And this song reminds me of that. And Jesus has been so faithful in my life. And it hasn't always been easy. But one of the things he was really faithful in is granting me the desire of giving me six children. I always wanted to have a big family. I grew up in a little town where there were a lot of big Catholic families. It was just me and my grandparents. And I thought, wow, that looks like so much fun to have a big family. I found out later it's probably more fun for the kids than the parents. <laughs> but, I, but God gave me those kids in six years. And it was good, but it was hard. And then I reached a point when the kids, my youngest, my oldest was in college, and my youngest was in junior high or middle school. And I thought, I'm driving my kids nuts, and I'm driving myself nuts, and, you know, maybe there's something else. And God, what would that be? And I had always had a desire to go back and get a master's degree. So I thought, okay, a master's degree. And where we were in our life right then, we were really struggling with some issues. We had been in two very difficult church splits, and we were seriously considering um, converting to Rome because we were done with schism. And also, my daughter in college was like, wandering. And she was, had all these questions, she, all these things she was hearing from liberal professors, and I had no idea how to answer them. But I knew, you know, that got me in touch with myself, and that when I was in college, I had those same questions, and I loved theology. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go back and get a degree in church history and theology. And, you know, my kids were in junior high and high school and college. They were, like, fine with it. I mean, wow, get her out of our hair for a while. But, you know, then I got there, and oh my gosh, I loved being in the academy. I loved my classes. And I thought, well, maybe this is really where I'm supposed to be now. Maybe this isn't just a two-year program. And I went back to my family, and they were like, PhD? Oh, we're not sure about that. And there also was the question of my age. I was you know, in my mid-50s or early 50s. And why would I be going back and getting a PhD? So I had to sort through all that. And I had to sort through what my desires were. And, and I was able to get in touch with the desire that I'd always had to share the gospel with young people and with college students because of my own experiences. And I also had this huge desire to be there for my kids. And I had to balance those two things. And I didn't know how to do it because sometimes I got so overboard with deadlines that I wasn't there anymore. And my Rich would come to me and say, where are you? I know you're here physically, but mentally you're not here. So I had to really seek the Lord and sort out all those desires and come to a place where I could say, okay, I think there's a lot of mixed stuff here. There's a lot of desires for recognition. There's a lot of desires to have an adult conversation with people. There's a lot of desires to get an A. My kids never gave me an A. But there's also a desire to serve your kingdom. And, but what about the kids, Lord? And I, I had this very clear memory of crying out to God and him saying to me, this is what I have for you, but you need to stay close to me so you know when your kids need you so that you can be available to them. And that was what I strove to be true to. And it had a cost. I didn't finish my PhD when I thought I would. I didn't finish it in time for a tenure track job to be even a viability. I had to die to that dream because I had sacrificed my life for something greater. But then I saw the ways in which God 
revealed to me what he had for me. And it wasn't that. It was this. It wasn't just a ministry in the academy. It was a ministry in the church. So if I had hung on to that dream, that really the dream that was pretty much arising out of my false self, I wouldn't even be here today preaching. So God takes those desires, and he wants to transfer them to the desires for his kingdom and for him. But it takes a while to do that. It means that we really have to let God sort us out. So there is a special kind of prayer that helps us with that, and I want to close with this. And it's a prayer that is called the Prayer of Self-Examine, and it's by St. Ignatius of Loyola. And I discovered this many years ago, and it really has helped me in sorting out my personal desires. Um, it's not meant to be prayed as a personal checklist at the end of the day. Oh, I did this, I did that, I didn't do this, I didn't do that. No, that's, that's not it at all. Ignatius writes about this as a way of embracing the gift of God's grace by looking for the places that you saw that grace at work during your day. You begin by reflecting where it is that you felt closest to God at work during your day. Where did you feel disconnected from God? Where were the moments where you could see God at work in your life and others? Where did you receive encouragement? At what point did you feel joy? At what point did you feel disappointed? Did it matter? Where did you feel disconnected from God? It's a prayer that teaches us to pay attention to what we truly love and what we truly hope for. And to find joy is often where you will find your deepest longings and fulfillments. David Benner finishes in his book, which I highly recommend, called Desiring God. As we grow in the process of discovering our kingdom hopes, we will discover the freedom to desire and hope for nothing more than God, and then enjoy with detachment every other blessing and gift. So out of all these stories of Simeon and Anna, finally, I was so impressed that they recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, that they recognized what God was doing through them and in the world. They were paying attention to the desires that God had put in them, and they were watching how God was bringing them about. So as we grow in our willingness to be formed and shaped by the Spirit, we too will begin to set aside the insignificant and watch for the significant to see just how large God's plan of salvation for the world is and to see God do things that we never imagined and discover that our true hopes also lie in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Amen.